0: This is Joel Shalit, and you're listening to Left to Burn, brought to you by thebattleground.eu, Europe's best left read in English. Today, I'll be talking about my new record, Everywhere But There, with Battleground publisher Natalie Sarkic Todd and communications director Maxime Satonet.
1: Do you guys want to introduce yourselves? Thanks, Joel. Yeah, I'm Natalie. I've been publishing The Battleground together with Joel for the last three, coming on four years now. This is the first time that we've really promoted coverage that we've been reporting on through Joel and his expertise on Middle East.
2: (laughs) And I'm Max Attenay. I'm a communications expert and I am promoting the journalism that uh, The Battleground publishes in all of the formats that we use.
0: And my name is Joel Shalit, and I'm the editor-in-chief of The Battleground, and I have a long and torrid history of audio recordings, both as a punk-inspired sound artist and as a journalist. I've been making documentary recordings of politics, both in North America, Israel, and Europe for the last 30 years.
1: Perhaps it would be helpful to explain how this new album fits into Battleground sounds.
0: Yes, we have an audio division. We publish podcasts, but we also publish records, documentary recordings about politics in both Europe, North America, and the Middle East. This is our fourth record. We've so far produced albums about the Black Lives Matter and African-American civil rights movement in the United States. We've published a documentary uh, album of The Sounds of Pandemic New York. And we have also published an album of recordings of primarily uh, immigrant street musicians in Europe during the immigration crisis and also a number of wars in the Middle East.
1: Maybe it's a good moment to ask you why in particular you think that recording minority groups and their voices is the way to go. I am a minority.
0: So a lot of my work is done for autobiographical reasons, you know, I, I always have bought into the idea that the personal is the political and that you're best sort of suited to talk about things that have affected your own life. And uh, I am a, a Jewish, Israeli, uh, American resident of Berlin and have been for 13 years. I grew up in a family that was strongly affected by the Holocaust. Both sides of my family were involved in smuggling refugees out of Europe to avoid the Holocaust, sometimes not successfully. My father and my maternal grandfather in particular. And I live in probably the most iconographic Arab immigrant neighborhood in all of Europe. It's called Neukun in southeastern Berlin, or you might even say South Central, if you want to make a good hip hop reference, since it's, 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 it's a very hip hop neighborhood. Uh, mm-hmm. It's the only place in Europe where you can get the same quality homos you can find in the West Bank and in Israel. So I'm, I've, I've found that Doing the equivalent of ethnographic journalism in the neighborhood has been a way of of highlighting one of the most least understood and most malign immigrant neighborhoods in Western Europe, even though it's technically in Eastern Europe at this point.
1: And you also spent time in Brussels during that period. Yes,
0: like many Berliners, my work has been elsewhere, especially journalists. And I was the news editor at Your Active and commuted back and forth from the Berlin office of Your Active to the Brussels office of Your Active, of which I was primarily leading the desk editing. And I made numerous field recordings of protests and of political events on the street throughout Brussels and Berlin during this time. And the record that we are releasing right now, Everywhere But There, is a typical product of the work I was doing between uh, 2014 and 2021, recording, in particular, Palestinian demonstrations against Israeli campaigns in the Gaza Strip, in Brussels and in Berlin, two very colorful and extremely fraught places for Jewish and Arab politics both on their own and combined.
1: Why now? Why have you decided to to publish these recordings now? These recordings have been on
0: my desk for a while and I have been playing with different ways to repurpose them for our work. We are as a publication or as a media consistently publishing on issues relating to racism and diversity and we have an ongoing interest in Middle Eastern politics as well. And the crisis in Israel for the last two years, in particular, over the government, what government would run the country, what politics would define the country moving forward, has been at the forefront of my mind. And in 2021, during the last Israeli campaign in Gaza, I was extremely upset about not having enough resources at my disposal to speak about it in a European context, only to discover as I went through my archives that I indeed had hours and hours and hours of recordings of demonstrations against Israeli campaigns in Gaza. And I went out and made more when Berlin got overrun by even more demonstrations against the Israeli uh, campaign in the Gaza Strip last year. So an album came out of it. And though I had a surplus... Uh, of material, I narrowed down about eight hours of recordings to 33 minutes that I was happy with. And that is this record. And this record is also being released at a rather curious time because in November, Israel elected probably its most right-wing government ever in its its history. And one of which is extremely nationalist and extremely religious in ways that though clear and obvious to israelis what end up becoming the norm has shocked the outside world for its right wing character so there is an opening here to talk about the palestinian crisis in light of the israeli crisis so to speak
1: and why the recordings made in capitals in europe what what is it that listening to the palestinian protest in brussels and berlin do you think will bring to our listeners
0: as a jewish resident of berlin Living in an Arab neighborhood, it's become very clear to me over the years that the degree to which, as many historians have argued, the Germans are co-responsible for the Palestinian crisis, particularly because if there had been no Holocaust, the Palestinians would be in a very different place today. And so would Jews living in what was historically known as Palestine as well. And I'm not suggesting that things would necessarily be rosy. But the, the British have taken the brunt of the blame for creating and cultivating the Israeli Palestinian conflict when, in fact, the Germans also had a role, not just through the Holocaust, but also through making Germany inhospitable to Jews to such a degree that they would want to move back to the Middle East, so to speak. German anti Semitism was a, an enormous driver in terms of the genesis of Zionism in much the same way that Russian anti Semitism historically has been, particularly during the Pale of Settlement. So being able to witness Palestinian demonstrations against Israeli policies in Berlin over the years, and I went to a lot of demonstrations of the Palestinian community in Berlin, was always really quite educational. And though some Israelis on the right would call me a naive leftist, most Israelis on the right that I know don't know anything about Arab culture and don't know anything about Palestinian culture. And regardless of our proximity to Arabs and Palestinians living in in Israel-Palestine, don't have the opportunity to get to know them as well as living right next door to them, as I have in Berlin. But if you live in an immigrant neighborhood, you live in a diaspora context, it can free everybody to be more educational in a lot of ways.
2: Okay. I have a question maybe a a bit broader, but... Tell us a bit more about the history of audio journalism and how political field recordings fit into this and what what is their purpose.
0: If you had the opportunity to grow up listening to the BBC World Service after the Second World War, you listened to a lot of ambient recordings of historical events. You heard as much background as you heard foreground. There was a lot of ex- experimenting going on in BBC coverage of wars in the Middle East, for example, and of revolutions that you didn't hear in other kinds of radio news. And I grew up with parents who had been British subjects in Palestine and multilingual who were absolutely glued to the BBC, whether on the shortwave or later on at living in London on the FM dial. So there was an extraordinary amount of, of really, really interesting experimental audio journalism being done under the auspices of traditional world reporting. And that's where I got my background in terms of uh, wanting to do a project like this, being inspired to do a project like this, and other projects that I've done. This is not the first piece of audio journalism that I've done. I've been recording political events since I was an undergraduate student capturing the sounds of Protestant fundamentalists outside abortion clinics in the United States. You know, I still have some of those recordings. I need to transfer them from cassette to digital from the mid to late 1980s. But there was always something really profound about being able to capture the sounds of people expressing themselves freely on the streets and then trying to find a way to shoehorn those into documentary work about political events. I went to college in the Pacific Northwest of the United States during the heyday of what used to be called the religious right. Protestant fundamentalism exploded, particularly in the Western half of the U.S. during that time. And the, the street politics of Protestant fundamentalists were very musical and very theatrical, and nobody seemed to be capturing them properly or interested in doing that because as liberals and leftists attending affluent and high rank. Uh, universities like UC Berkeley and my undergraduate alma mater, Reed College, we all thought that Protestant fundamentalists were stupid idiots who were, were going to eventually be cycled out of history simply because they were just reacting to progress. You know? mm-hmm. And that obviously turned out to be a big lie.
2: In terms of uh, political field recording, what is the best way to to listen to them and uh, how how should they be understood and processed by the audience?
0: It used to be that what we call political field recordings now got released as documentary vinyl by major broadcasters like the BBC and CBS and and the CBC in Canada. I did my doctoral work in Canada and bought a lot of vinyl there when I was a student. And that practice of releasing records with the subjects of the sounds of the civil rights movement or recordings of US soldiers in the jungles of Vietnam that practice has completely disappeared major broadcasters don't release stuff like that anymore i think the last time i saw a significant album recording like that was maybe in the late 1970s in in my old college radio library from you know a local broadcaster on in the on the east coast i think it was something somebody like wgbh in boston which is a national public radio affiliate so We're kind of reinventing the wheel by doing this. We're basically resurrecting a a 1960s style or practice of releasing full-length documentary audio recordings of political events. There is a really great historic record label that bridge between what we're doing in that period in broadcast releases of of records in Seattle called Sublime Frequencies. During the early 00s, they started releasing documentary recordings of things like Israeli and Palestinian radio stations. There's one record I, I think is focused on the 80s. You'll have to forgive me about those dates. But those records were, in a lot of ways, very much attempts to sort of reinvent the documentary political recording genre, but more from the perspective of people who are interested in like what kind of pop music was being played on like Israeli and Palestinian radio stations in the early 1980s. I forget the name of the uh, Sublime Frequencies album, but it's an absolute classic. Uh, they also released a number of of recordings of like Algerian and Syrian and Iraqi pop radio vintage recordings made like on boom boxes during the the height of the U.S. occupation of Iraq in the beginning of the Syrian Civil War. Obviously, no accident that they were doing that. It was a form of political commentary. But that is the kind of the middle ground between these classic 1960s state broadcaster records and what we're doing now.
1: Speaking as the publisher, um, I mean, you you said about it, the political commentary, the, the recordings are part of our mix of media that we, you know, we are innovating around. So it's great to to understand where, where they come from. But I think it's also interesting to consider how, you know, given the different media that we have today and the different technologies, how we're able to add to that media mix and, and enrich the experience, I hope, for our audiences and our listeners.
0: Well we're living through a heyday of people going out on the street with mobile phones capturing politics. I was working at a a citizen journalism startup in Silicon Valley in 2008. And we had people sending us video recordings and images from mobile phones about the same time that CNN got their iReport platform going where you could just upload video and photos of of current events around the world. And they started calling it citizen journalism at the time. And so there was it was clear that portable technology was driving all kinds of new ways to do old kinds of work. From taking photographs to making home movies to making audio recordings of political events. And since the advent of podcasting and the use of mobile phones to create podcasts and to record things on the street that might be able to contribute to news programs, it was always very surprising to me that nobody was trying to create full-length documentary audio recordings on that basis.
2: To to Natalie, I was wondering: Is this, as the publisher, this kind of audio journalism? How does that fit in the mix for the battleground? And why do you think that audio, other media organizations don't do any of it?
1: Some some do. I mean, as a Brit, I listen regularly to the BBC, and I, I notice that they're starting to bring back the the audio, the field recordings, let's say, into some of their radio reporting, um, which is good to to hear. But I think it, we we should probably mention our audio editor here, uh, Raz I, who's in New York and who first brought us the idea.
0: He's a teacher. He runs a music school in, in Brooklyn, and one of his one of his students, w- who was uh, on a, what they call a, a forensic audio. Uh, track, made these amazing recordings of anti-police brutality protests in New York associated with um, African-American civil rights activists and Black Lives Matter. And, you know, Roz was very keen on getting us to build a strong audio component in our editorial track at uh, the battleground and thought, okay... I have an album's worth of this material from New York from his student. Let's see if we can get it started this way. It's a fantastic record that has not quite gotten its due. It was our first release. We ran into a lot of censorship online promoting it because of the BLM connotations. Twitter, uh, developed very, uh, very early on an anti-BLM policy in terms of not allowing the platform to promote anything related to BLM because of law enforcement concerns in the United States that essentially these people are terrorists rather than civil rights activists. So given the degree to which these kinds of decisions are made in the United States, where most of these social platforms or develop that can have consequences for your ability to talk about these issues on these platforms in Europe.
1: And it was I was very disappointing actually at the time that yeah. we weren't able to to promote it more. But we can always do a re-release. Well, maybe, but that's a kind of a good moment to focus on the people in the recordings in, in this album, uh, the, the Palestinian diaspora. And Joel, I, I think your best place to give us that that kind of feeling for you know who are the people in Brussels and in uh, Berlin who are protesting, and can you give us a little bit more detail, a bit more information about their communities, their lives? Sure, Berlin. Let's let's talk. We'll talk about each city, Berlin to
0: start out with, has a very active and politicized Palestinian diaspora community. Ever since I moved to Berlin in 2010, they've been extremely visible in uh, protesting against the continued Israeli occupation of the West Bank and Gaza Strip, and, and at times protesting against the way that Palestinian Israelis are treated in Israel proper. And so since 2010, I've had an opportunity to attend a number of these demonstrations. They have been um, remarkably instructive. They haven't always been great. I don't necessarily always agree with everything that I see at these events, but they have given me an education in Palestinian politics that I probably would not have gotten in Israel. And that doesn't mean that when I'm in Israel, I go to all the relevant events that I could be educated by. But like a lot of Israelis, I live in a fairly monoethnic bubble and don't associate with a lot of people who aren't Jewish. So this has been, you know, as a journalist, it's completely enlightening. And the kinds of things that I've covered in Berlin have been mostly against Bibi's repeat campaigns in the Gaza Strip since he became prime minister. The whenever he has an election in the offing tends to run a campaign in Gaza, and the casualties are usually really high for the Palestinians, and and the repercussions always seem to involve Bibi getting reelected. So, most of the turbulence in the Palestinian community in Europe over the last thirteen years have revolved around that, uh, and so Netanyahu has been a central figure being protested at all these demonstrations. And sometimes at these demos, you will see Islamists, not often, uh, but sometimes. In in Berlin in particular, they've been largely confined to an annual summer march that has been discontinued called Al-Quds Day. Al-Quds is the Arabic word for Jerusalem. Those events tend to be led by Shiite clerics, some of whom are Iranian and sympathetic to Hezbollah, uh, the uh, Shiite militia group in Lebanon that effectively turfed Israel out of Lebanon in 1999 after uh, Mm -hmm. 17 years of fighting. The Al-Quds Day events were, I doubt they'll ever be repeated in Europe. Their specificity relating to Lebanon, relating to Shiism, relating to Iran, were remarkable to witness. And they were always heavily protested by German-Israeli solidarity protesters who affiliated with what they call the anti-Deutsche or anti-German strain on the German left, which is essentially a Zionist, communist, and anarchist kind of faction of German leftists who feel that it's necessary to take a hard line on the Palestinians in order to redress the the Holocaust. (laughs)
1: Can you tell us a little bit about the reaction in Germany from German politicians but German authorities to the protests themselves I mean talking particular the you know the Palestinian protests against campaigns in Gaza In recent
0: years in Berlin there's been a very strong response from local government and police forces. There's a general concern that whenever there's a Palestinian demonstration or pro-Palestinian demonstration in the city, that they inevitably devolve into uh, acts of anti-Semitism and platforms for anti-Semites. I don't think that there's any argument that there's always a little bit of that. The problem with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is it is a racist conflict, and it's a conflict that involves a lot of racism and people with different racist agendas hijacking the conflict, particularly in Europe. There are also problems with the kinds of language that gets used, depending on where you come from, to describe Israel. Sometimes in Arab circles, as as has been the case in Berlin, people of refugee background and of migrant background from the Middle East will use terms like Yahudi, which means Jew instead of Israeli when they mean Israeli by using Yahudi. And the Germans don't understand that at all. Um, And there are people in the right wing community in Germany who see that as an opportunity to use Palestinian demonstrations in Germany as an excuse to defer blame for anti-Semitism in Germany onto Palestinian refugee shoulders. And Mm -hmm. it gets very complicated. And so there's been an increasing trend to simply shut down pro-Palestinian and Palestinian protests because of that, and because over time, a number of the protests in Berlin in particular have featured more strongly Islamic elements, which the German police automatically associate with Hamas and Hezbollah. I've been at events where there was no such thing going on and they still clamp down for those sorts of reasons. So if you're Jewish and you live in Germany To see the German police taking a strong line on anti-Semitism is always a good thing because none of us trust the police. (laughs) Um, Police have have a terrible reputation in Germany for being anti-Semites and riddled with far-right activists who've joined the security forces to get military and paramilitary training. When they clamp down hard on the Arabs, people, even on the right side of the Jewish community, kind of go, well, um, yeah, but... So it's very interesting to watch and document these kinds of things as a journalist, and I caught a lot of that. I don't necessarily publish everything about that that I capture simply because it's not always clear from a journalistic point of view how other people might understand that without a lot of work explaining the audio aspects of it. But it's there, and everybody in the liberal and left Jewish community is particularly Anxious about it, simply because of all the civil rights issues involved, and particularly in the last year, shutting down pro-Palestinian and Palestinian protests in Berlin. I mean, we've also been going through for the last, you know, couple of years because of the pandemic, a heightened anti-Semitism on the part of white uh, ethnic Germans. To watch the police take a hard line on Arab and Palestinian migrants and let the white Germans go is hard to
2: stomach. And as a journalist, how do you reconcile the fact, or your drish as well? So when in during these protests, you hear anti Semite chants and, um, but I guess you're still tempted to, to record it. And because, well, part of the job of a journalist is to report on, on the fact of, of the facts of what's happening. So how do you reconcile that? And what is the process for you?
0: I don't hear very much. In fact, as a journalist who's out there documenting all of this with my cameras and my audio recorders, the amount of antisemitism that I've come across in these events has been absolutely minimal compared to what gets talked about in the German press. So I would be more alarmed uh, about the antisemitism that is allegedly a part of these events if I enc- encountered it more often. In fact, what I see quite often are Palestinian and Arab demonstrators posting signs saying, we are multiculturalists, we are not anti-Semites. I mean, they will they will carry placards to that effect to make a point because they know. And so perhaps I'm naive and I'm being snookered by uh, tactical communications, but I've talked with a lot of the, these Palestinian demonstrators and uh, interacted with them. And I think that Their anti-Semitism is largely exaggerated in a German context for domestic political reasons. I do think there is anti-Semitism. Nonetheless, I haven't recorded much or captured much uh, precisely because it's not there. And to the degree that I I do encounter it and when I do encounter it, of course, it makes me uncomfortable. Uh, Anti-Semitism is anti-Semitism, but Arab anti-Semitism is more reactive, to political circumstances in the Middle East, that it comes out of a sort of a notion of ethnic superiority that you find amongst populists and nationalists in Europe who are not Arab.
1: And Brussels, by contrast, is uh, how would you describe the, uh, the situation there for the Palestinian community?
0: Again, I can only speak as a Jewish reporter following um, Arab and Palestinian protesters around the city. The protest movement against Israel and its policies against the Palestinians in Brussels to the degree that it is Middle Eastern seems far more integrated than the Arab community in Berlin. And they don't seem like they just, to use the American phrase, got off the boat. They seem like Belgians as much as they seem like Arabs. And, and so they they come across from a journalistic perspective as being, to a large degree, Persons of diasporic community with strong attachments to where their families may have come from, but who are also francophones. A Completely different vibe you know, than what you experience in Berlin. In Berlin, everybody is obviously. I'm speaking, you know, in an autobiographical voice, but in Berlin, it feels like when you go to these kinds of events, everybody is brand new to the city, and so, uh, including myself. So the, the cultural difference is indeed perceptible. There is a strong Lebanese influence in the local Palestinian culture in Brussels. Like, for example, when we went out to have hummus at Al-Karam, near the Abattoir in in Anderlecht uh, a few weeks ago, that was a place that in my experience had historically served very typically Palestinian versions of the meze dishes that we grew up with in the northern Middle East, but had transitioned from being more Palestinian regionally to being more Lebanese, which really surprised me. I hadn't been there in a few years.
1: You had two types of hummus. One you described to us was uh, the traditional kind of Lebanese and the other was more Palestinian.
0: Exactly. The Palestinian hummus is always heavier. They had introduced Um, you know, what we call in Hebrew chatzilim, as opposed to baba ganoush, you know, an eggplant based dip. It was more smoked and it was sweeter, very similar to what you would find on a Syrian menu. And so that was, again, reflective of the degree to which the Brussels influences had helped redefine or reshape this restaurant's otherwise Palestinian menu. They're feeling integrated in the local culture and offering things more consistent in that place you know if you go to any of the the grocery stores in that neighborhood it's very lebanese so that makes sense i also found to the degree that there were islamist elements in the protests that i attended and recorded in brussels you had whether sincere or not the first isis iconography that i'd seen in europe given what happened with the, the airport and metro bombings in 2016 that kind of made sense even though The people who carried out those bombings were not Palestinian uh, Arabs at all. It's just that there was an ISIS element or appreciation in Islamist circles in the Brussels area that didn't exist in other places I had covered. If you look at Sharia for Belgium and the antecedents to the ISIS scene that grew up in Brussels and Paris at that time, it makes sense.
1: Which year was that, Joe, when you saw that? 2014, 2015. Right.
0: Yeah. In those specific two years, there was one Gaza-related protest in front of Brussels Nord. And I saw a couple of black ISIS flags for the first time. And it was really just a couple of blocks away from the park where they had the big refugee camp in 2015 set up during the summer. I talked to a lot of the people who were camped out there for an article I I was working on for uh, The Forward in New York. Again, these Palestinians were very much like the Berlin Palestinians. They were very secular. A lot of them were very educated. Th- there was nothing that fit any right-wing caricatures of Arab migrants at that time. Nothing, zero.
1: No, no, and I, I also recall that period uh, when we were both working together in in Brussels uh, and the refugees that were coming in at the time. And indeed, there was a large Palestinian contingent through some of the the friends and colleagues I had who were trying to help them.
0: There had been a lot of fighting between the Syrian government and Palestinian forces, even though there had also been alignments between Palestinians and the Syrian government, like with the PFLP. But Islamists drove a lot of these people out and sent them to Europe along with the
1: Syrian government. Right. And do you think, Joel, that with Brussels uh, having the EU institutions located there, does that have any influence effect on the integration of Palestinians in Brussels, or is it really not connected?
0: My parents lived in Brussels in the 1950s, long before I was born. And when I would report back to them in the OOs about what it was like to live in the city, they were shocked at how Middle Eastern it had gotten. They had no experience of there being a Middle Eastern community of any kind in the city in the years after the Second World War. For them, Brussels was an Italian city. Most of their neighbors were working class Italian immigrants who'd come to help rebuild the country after the war. That
1: speaks to the waves of immigration that uh, certainly Belgium uh, experienced, but many other countries too.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they were working for the Israeli government at the time in in Brussels, and they were very cognizant of other Middle Easterners being in the mix. And so my father said that in his experience, Belgium had started to develop a a large Arab community in the early 70s through migrant laborers and first Moroccans and Palestinians and Syrians. But with the refugee crisis of 2015, of course, that drove a lot of new blood from the northern Middle East and really helped sort of cement the strong Middle Eastern culture that is very visibly present in Brussels today.
1: One other thing that that struck me when we were talking uh, previously about the diaspora, you mentioned it's around 100,000 Palestinians in in Europe versus 5 million Palestinian Arabs in the West Bank and Gaza. How far is the diaspora representative of the population that's living still in the West Bank and Gaza?
0: Palestinian civil society is very culturally affluent and well-educated. The Palestinian community that I know in Europe is no different from the one I know of in the occupied territories and in Israel. Though they are heavily discriminated against in Europe to varying degrees, the Palestinian community in Europe has more opportunities because of that. I mean, obviously, we we have a very specific cultural view of Palestinians as as always existing in Gaza-like conditions because of the crisis in Gaza, which is just terrible. In fact, Palestinians have, to varying degrees, been extremely successful. As I said earlier, Palestinian society is, uh, in a lot of respects, iconographic for its its intellectuals and its business people, its entrepreneurialism the Palestinian society that has been lost as a consequence of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict was much more significant than we realize.
1: And in terms of, I'm just thinking in terms of the reaction to the protests firstly, and then maybe to these recordings, what, what are the outcomes of, of the protests that you've recorded over the years? You must have seen the politics shifting, and I'm just wondering, you know, do, do they get noticed now? Do they get reported? Do they have any effect?
0: One of the reasons I wanted to publish them is I feel that Palestinians have have only gotten treated more poorly in Germany. There's been a development of something that could roughly be called anti-Palestinianism in Germany amongst the liberal left, which has been really awful to watch. You've seen really competent and longstanding journalists in German public broadcasters like Deutsche Welle lose their jobs because of their anti-Israel politics and characterized as extremists in ways that don't actually fit their mm-hmm. politics. I, I don't expect any of these people to necessarily be my friend or like me for being an Israeli, but I don't think they've been treated fairly at all. And so when the first prohibitions on Palestinian protests started taking place in 2021, that at least I was familiar with in the Berlin area, I started to really feel that something had changed in Germany regarding the Palestinians. And and there is a lot of discussion in the Jewish community about this, both in Germany and in Israel, that the Germans are going overboard in trying to manage their Palestinian community as a way of managing their own Holocaust guilt and displacing their own Holocaust guilt and that it came at a time of renewed and very public anti-Semitism with the anti-vax movement in the country with the lateral thinkers. Mm-hmm. It made perfect sense that this was how they were trying to compensate for that. I'm I'm appalled. It's really broken my heart about it. the degree to which I think the Germans are ever going to be able to get past the kinds of negative ethnic politics that underlie both anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. And I do believe they're entirely connected.
1: Are you saying that that's leading to a kind of self-censorship on the part of the media community? Yes.
0: There's an attempt to continually frame Palestinians as bad immigrants in the German media. News media themselves are very sloppy in how they use things like news photographs of the Palestinian community to try and frame that.
1: And with the latest phenomenon pitting <laughs> news headlines with the Reichsburgers, do you think that there might be a shift in German authorities' uh, focus, understanding that there is uh, a threat on the kind of far-right uh, white German side of the community?
0: I think the Germans don't know how to work that out very clearly. I think that there is a, for lack of a better term, a petite bourgeois Islamophobia of the liberal left, and there is a a radical extremist Islamophobia that's typical of white nationalist groups and they live side by side. And I think that it would be great if in the government's response to white nationalist extremists like the Reichsberger, that they would connect the dots between that and the liberal middle class persecuting its Arab members. It stands to reason. And there are Germans who do indeed talk about that. Part of their response to the, rise, the, the, the resurgent white nationalism that is a part of German civil society today is to try to manage anything that they believe approximates that in other minority groups.
1: We should remember that it's not only uh, restricted to Germany in terms of the rise of nationalist groups.
0: No, no, no. But in, in the context of this record, these recordings are coming out of that context. Obviously, the Vlaams Belong don't like Palestinians or any Arabs in Belgium, but they don't really play a significant role in relationship to framing the recordings that I made.
1: What reaction are you anticipating from the the media community, the Jewish community, the Palestinian and Arab community? I
0: can only speak of my own cultural community immediately with any degree of honesty. Doing a project like this is always difficult as a Jewish journalist, just because we don't talk about Arab culture and Arab civilization in any depth. There are a lot of Jewish historians and sociologists who study Middle Eastern culture and Middle Eastern society writ large, but there isn't necessarily an interest in dissecting diaspora Arab politics this way. So I think at at best, a big part of the response in certain quarters of of my community will be, what the fuck did you just do? It's really left field. I was educated in the United States at a time when cultural anthropology was really influential in both the social sciences and humanities with uh, anthropologists like Clifford Geertz, where it was considered very important to try to appreciate otherness. And if you come from an Israeli family like I do, who's been on the front lines of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict for the better part of the last century, you want to know about the people you're allegedly in conflict with. And so for those people who don't like my politics, I would at the very least feel that they could maybe learn a little bit more about the emotional Response to the crisis with Israel that you hear in a record like this, it matters to understand that, and it also matters that these are people singing and not setting off bombs. Good you point. Know, this is what we prefer, ideally, and so this record is about nonviolence to a, to a large degree. It's about being in political dispute without suicide bombers and and lion's dens. to Name one of the most recent Palestinian factions. This is about. Civilized minorities in the diaspora complaining about their situation.
1: Fantastic, thank you, Joel, for explaining that really clearly and succinctly. It's it's not easy for non-experts in the region and its politics always to to grasp what's going on and and even you know who are the people who are involved. So I sincerely hope that people will listen to this and to the recordings and with an open mind and open ears.
2: I think that this is a very interesting record. And I think that also this kind of journalism is important for society as a whole. The Battleground is committed to providing what we call slow news. And I think that this really fits into what we want to offer um, our audience. This is, in fact, slow news. The possibility to learn a lot about our society and the way uh, like other people think and what they are preoccupied about. So it's a it's a very important piece of, of journalism that uh, you captured here, and I, I hope that a lot of people will be able to listen to it.
0: Thanks, you guys. This has been a great conversation. I really appreciate having it. I don't have many opportunities to talk about my work like this, and it's always awesome to have colleagues like you to rap about it with.
1: I'm really happy that we can publish and promote it with you.
0: That's it from us today. Left to Burn will be back next week with Josh White and John Foster talking about European politics and more.